Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, I'm celebrating Final Girl Friday's two-year anniversary by talking about my favorite horror film, Reanimator. You couldn't call or write a note. I was busy pushing bodies around, as you well know. And what would a note say, Dan? Cat dead. Details later. This is the number one most requested topic from you guys, and I had been saving it for a special occasion, which turns out to be my two-year anniversary. I'm not going to be doing deep dives of the films today. I'm really just kind of going to be talking generally about the films, how I feel about them, my thoughts, maybe peppering in a couple of fun facts. But I wanted to further celebrate this anniversary by kind of going back to my roots, which if you're someone who's been listening to this podcast for two years, uh, you might remember that I didn't used to script my content. I was a babbling fucking mess because I have a really hard time staying on a linear thought process when I don't have the words in front of me. So this is going to be a, an unscripted episode. I really hope it's listenable. Only time will tell. But I just, I don't know, I thought it would be kind of fun, uh, especially because um, it's been a, an exciting year for me uh, as a, a, a horror fan and, and as a, um, a horror content creator, which isn't something I ever used to call myself or consider myself. When I first started doing this, podcast. I didn't even call it a podcast. I called it an audio blog. And then about a year later, I, I I finally started referring to it as a podcast, but reluctantly. And I also always made sure to specify to people that it was a passion project. After long deliberation and a couple of pretty awesome things that have happened lately, um, I've recently decided to stop referring to it as a passion project. It is a podcast. It's my podcast. It may be a little weird and a little different compared to some of the others out there, but it's mine. <laughs> and I absolutely love sitting down talking about horror movies with you guys. I fucking love it so much. Some of you may remember that I called for volunteer contributors to finalgirlfriday.net. I have had a couple of people reach out to me about that. That's fucking awesome. I cannot wait to see the website continue to grow and become more of a network of horror fans rather than just me occasionally posting reviews. I'm just, I'm fucking stoked about that. But also I am, um, I now have an editor, somebody who's going to be editing my content for me. I'm obviously still going to be putting my own, my own personality on it because that's, you know, that's the point. But having an editor is going to change uh, a lot of, of things for me. It's going to allow me to put content out a little bit more frequently. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what happens with that. Anyway, I didn't mean to jump right into podcast talk. I had intended to save this uh, for the end, but I don't know, man. I'm, I'm excited. And also it's my anniversary. So fuck it. I can talk about whatever I want, right? <laughs> it's been a really cool year. My voice is going to be in a movie, which I still can't wrap my brain around. I joined TikTok recently, which is not a sentence I ever thought would come out of my mouth. Most importantly, I just want to extend a resounding thank you to all of you who, for whatever reason, took an interest in my content and started listening to me rambling about horror movies. <laughs> thank you. I have kind of some issues with um, self-confidence and stuff, and I, I don't, I, I'm just kind of an awkward fucking thing and I, I don't I don't understand why people want to listen to me talk about the movies but I want to talk about them so I do it and the fact that there are people that listen just I, I can't words cannot describe joy <laughs> this is that this is more that awkwardness I just mentioned anyway I just want to thank you guys so much thank you from the bottom of my heart I really hope we get at least another two years out of this project so tonight we're going to talk about reanimator as well as uh, the sequels again in a more of a general way I also thought because I had had a handful of people asking me about it that I would um I would share my meeting Jeffrey Combs stories they were two of the best days of my life and I haven't really talked about them so I thought I would share those stories with you tonight before I can dive into all of that I do have a couple of quick points of interest first and foremost for my fellow shutter subscribers if you have not yet watched any Thing for Jackson. Please do. My name is Audrey, and this is my husband Henry. We feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. 
It is so fucking good. It tells a story of a grieving couple um, who are mourning the loss of their grandson, who they are determined to bring back from the dead. And to do this, they have to kidnap a pregnant woman. And the entire film, for the most part, takes place inside their home uh, once they've kidnapped her. It starts It starts really strong. Anything for Jackson was directed by Justin Dick and was released in March uh, of this year. I was initially looking forward to seeing it simply because it was a film with Julian Richings in the lead. I think he's one of those actors, much like Jeffrey Cohn, who is exceptionally talented. Everybody knows they're exceptionally talented and they get cast in a lot of things, but not as lead characters. I was so happy to see that Julian Richings had a lead role in this film. But getting into it, I mean, I kind of went in blind otherwise. And it, it proved to be one of the more frightening films I've seen in a long time. It is it is scary. For a little recommended listening, I have discovered another new podcast that I now cannot stop listening to. It is called The Dissector's Cut. I want to read you guys there about me from Spotify. The Dissector's Cut is a podcast where our two top surgeons, Matthew and Josh, perform autopsies on the horrors of the media and entertainment industry. Have a seat in the anatomical theater. Class will begin shortly. What movie are we talking about? Today we're oh. talking about Alien. Ooh, alien. And let me just say, um, the title says it all. (laughs) (laughs) I love listening to these guys. They have excellent chemistry. It's fun. It's entertaining, educational, very funny. I can't recommend the dissectors cut enough. For a little recommended reading, Jason Jenkins is at it again for my favorite editorial series, Phantom Limbs at Bloody Disgusting, uh, with a very timely article entitled Candyman 4, Tony Todd Revisits the Winterset Sequel That Was Never Made. This was such a fascinating read. I had never heard of this. I didn't realize that Tony Todd had come up with an idea for a fourth Candyman film, um, that it just was never realized. And now the trailer for the Candyman remake just dropped. So the hype around Candyman is, it's just, it's crazy high right now. And I was just kind of blown away by what Todd had envisioned. Apparently the film would have been set in New England uh, in the winter during a snowstorm specifically. Candyman would have, as Todd puts it, submerged himself into a human capability and he would have chopped off his own arm to try to break the curse that causes him to kill. And I mean, it's just, it's a really, it's a very interesting concept. And it was so fun to read Tony Todd's thoughts and ideas about it. Of course, the the catch with Phantom Limbs is that they're always bittersweet reads because a lot of the time these projects, when you read about them, you're instantly like, oh man, I wish that I could have seen that to see how that might play out. And and we probably never will. But yeah, so I think that's pretty much all I've got for this week. If you are new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you have not seen Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, or Beyond Reanimator, proceed with caution for there will be spoilers ahead. Right, it's finally time to talk about Reanimator. Reanimator is my favorite horror movie ever made. It's also one of my favorite movies in general, but that's a, a bit of a harder question to answer. This one, however, at the very top of my horror movies list is and forever shall remain Reanimator, directed by Stuart Gordon, released in October of 1985. But before I dive into the film, I wanted to talk a little bit about my first experience with it. It it changed my life, this movie. I had just moved to Omaha. Uh, I think I'd been here for less than a year. I was in school, uh, going to college here, and I had a couple of like friends at school. I got along with my coworkers, you know, as you do. But I didn't really have a core group of friends or even really anyone that I spent a significant amount of time with outside of of work or class. And some friends of a friend were hosting this weekly horror movie double feature night. They called it Splatterhouse. They had converted their living room into a movie theater, which was pretty impressive. Every Tuesday night, we would all get together and watch scary movies. And I started going more than anything because I wanted people to socialize with, but also because I did love of horror films. I was a huge fan of the Halloween franchise, uh, as well as the Friday the 13th. And I loved a lot of the classics, you know, like Alien and Jaws. And um, I had also been an avid trauma fan. Uh, thanks to my friend group in high school, I was, I was a little obsessed with trauma in a way that kind of, I think, seemed like it came out of left field <laughs> to some people. But 
I had, I had watched like Surf Nazis Must Die, Trauma's War, Terra Firmer. Those were all movies that I watched a lot in high school. And I was particularly fond of the headier, dark fantasy horror films of Alex Proyas and Jean-Pierre Genet. So I went into Slaughterhouse. I mean, not knowing nothing, but there were a lot of subgenres that I wasn't as familiar with, including slashers. I mean, there were some that I had really enjoyed growing up, but there were just a ton of filmmakers, actors, people working within the industry that were a part of the horror family with which I just was not familiar. And there were just, there were some staples that I needed to see. So I saw a lot of those films during that year that I went to Splatterhouse. I think I saw Suspiria for the first time there, Mark of the Devil, The Other Hell, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. Like all of those movies were introduced to me through this movie night. And of course, in addition to those uh, was Reanimator. I'm almost positive they showed it as a double feature alongside From Beyond. At that time, I was completely unaware of Stuart Gordon. I think I had seen The Dentist, but I I didn't have, I guess my first impression of The Dentist at, at whatever age I was when I saw it, it didn't really stick with me. I also think I had probably seen Castle Freak on television at some point growing up, but I had never seen really watched a Stuart Gordon film. And the same is true of Jeffrey Combs, because I grew up with House on Haunted Hill and The Frighteners. Uh, and of course, I loved him as Dr. Vanneket and Milton Dammers, but I had never really paid attention to Jeffrey Combs. And so here came Reanimator, just barreling into my life. And it looked me square in the eyes and said, You will do what I tell you to do. And I fell completely in love, not just with Reanimator uh, and everyone involved in that film, but with the genre in general. I walked away from Splatterhouse that fateful night, a fanatic, and I embarked on this ongoing self-guided educational kick where I have just been consuming almost exclusively horror films now for the past like 16, 17 years. <laughs> and after all of these years, I have to say, Reanimator has never faltered at the top of my list. It is still my favorite. It will always be my favorite. Stuart Gordon is one of my favorite filmmakers. Going, you know, going back after Reanimator, watching From Beyond Castle Freak, learning a little bit more about his work with Jeffrey and his work in theater and just that family, becoming familiar with the Stuart Gordon family, uh, falling in love with not just Jeffrey Combs, but also Barbara Crampton and Bruce Abbott, Brian Usna, uh, even, even Richard Band. But, you know, falling in love with everyone that was a part of that family. I think the, the biggest takeaway for me with Reanimator was a lifelong obsession with Jeffrey Combs and his work. Um, he is just, I think, the most spectacularly talented actor who has ever lived. I can't really call him underused because he has been in a just a, a mind-boggling amount of films and television. People know that Jeffrey Combs is talented. He gets roles. But he isn't always appreciated the way that I wish that he would be by the masses. Because I think he's a fucking genius. But getting back on track, Reanimator, as I mentioned, directed and co-written by Stuart Gordon, uh, produced by Brian Usna, who also co-wrote the film along with William Norris, and released in October of 1985. When trying to summarize Reanimator for anyone who hasn't seen it, which if you haven't seen it, please stop listening to me talk about it and just go watch it yourself. Treat yourself, you deserve it. But you know, when trying to describe the plot of Reanimator to someone who hasn't seen it, there are I think a few different ways one can approach that accurately. Uh, the movie is kind of different things for different people. I think the easiest way to summarize it is it is very loosely based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft called Herbert West Reanimator. In fact, uh, included in the title card, it says H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator, you know, so he's getting the, the lion's share of the credit for the story, but it's, it's a very loose adaptation. Uh, and something else that I think a lot of people don't really talk about is in addition to being loosely based on that short story, it's also kind of a parody of Frankenstein. There's a lot of Frankenstein in this film. There's a lot of Faust in this film. I think they're kind of drawing inspiration from a handful of things. And uh, so yeah, you have a mad scientist bumbling through life as a mad scientist does, attempting to solve life's greatest mysteries through science and the adversaries he encounters along the way. One of the ways in which Reanimator sets itself apart, finds its own voice as, you know, an adaptation is with the character of Dan Kane. No, Rufus wasn't dead to begin with. You drugged him and reduced his vital signs. You lowered his body temperature. He couldn't have been dead. 
the short story by H.P. Lovecraft is told from the perspective of an unnamed narrator who becomes tangled up in West's perverse quest to cheat death at all costs. The narrator definitely has an arc in that short story, and he goes through hell because he's initially enamored of Herbert, and he he gets completely drawn into the obsession and, and begins to share that obsession with him. But over time, as West kind of unravels, the narrator becomes more afraid of him than anything and and kind of falls into almost like an Igor-esque type of a role, kind of. But in Gordon's version, that character is Dan Kane, and he has a life outside of this situation. He has a name. He has a whole personality. He's not just relaying events to an audience. He's living his life. And I really like how they chose to explore the friendship between Herbert and Dan as it develops. The point that I'm making <laughs> is that in addition to describing Reanimator as an adaptation of a Lovecraft story, as well as a kind of parody of Frankenstein, I also kind of think of it as like the ultimate bromance. <laughs> After hundreds of rewatches, that's the conclusion I've come to about Reanimator. It is the ultimate bromance. There are aspects of that relationship that change drastically uh, in the second film, and then it's it's non-existent in the third, really. I mean, well, we'll get to that. But for this first film, I love that you have two characters who are essentially working toward the same goal, but coming at it from completely different angles. Their motivations are totally different. And I like how that affects and kind of interferes with both of their lives, obviously much more so one than the other. So let's go ahead and talk about the story. You have, as I said, two guys. You have Dan Kane, your sort of everyday average, idealistic, uh, perhaps slightly too emotionally invested medical student. He struggles with the grim reality of death from a humanitarian standpoint. He just sort of has a difficult time accepting that death is a reality that he has to deal with as a doctor. And then you have Herbert West, who is (sighs) just the greatest fictional character ever written. No big deal. Just the best. He's sort of like your Victor Frankenstein type. It is not the appearance of life. It is life. This is not magic. As you say, I am a scientist. He is also a medical student. At the start of the film, he's attending school in Switzerland. When we first meet him, his professor, Dr. Gruber, has died. And West has reanimated him, brought him back using his reagent, which is a a neon green liquid. They used glow stick liquid for it in the film. It was actually the very first time that glow stick liquid had ever been used on film. Uh, And so he has injected that into Gruber's corpse and brought him back to life. The problem with the reagent is that while it does, in fact, work in reanimating the body, there are gruesome consequences. And it doesn't really seem that much at all of the original person remains. For that reason, people refer to the reanimated corpses in Reanimator as zombies. Basically, the reanimated corpses appear to be in a lot of pain. There is blood and goo oozing from like every available orifice. And uh, they also seem to have been resurrected with a shiny new homicidal rage. So they come back wrong and they come back violent. So most of the time, as soon as West has reanimated someone, they have to be put down. And that's the case with Dr. Gruber at the beginning of the film. West leaves Switzerland and goes to Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts. And there is where he meets Dan. West is a very different character from Dan. He's far less emotionally motivated uh, or emotionally present. His value on human life is much more scientific. Uh, He is obviously determined to cheat death, but I think it's less about saving people and more about overcoming a mysterious inevitability that no one else has ever been able to overcome or understand. It's, It's more... He's approaching it scientifically, and he will perfect his reagent and master the reanimation process at all cost, no matter what. That's his number one priority. So when he and Dan first cross paths and become kind of entangled with one another because West um, needs a place to live and Dan is looking for a roommate, they end up moving in together. And it isn't long before Dan is completely sucked into West's obsession. He's fascinated by it, especially because he sees so early on in their friendship, he sees proof that the reagent works. And so Dan's like, okay, no, I'm on board. So his motivations might be different, but he's drawn in all the same. Dan and Herbert have a complicated friendship. Because of the differences between them, because they have such different motivations, Herbert doesn't really seem to be in in conflict much. He's just perpetually annoyed by 
the many obstacles he encounters on a daily basis trying to perfect his reagent and cheat death. But Dan is in a constant state of moral dilemma, like moral panic, as a result of his friendship with Wes, the experiments they're conducting, how that's affecting him and the people around him. As a result, he's just sort of wandering around with like this like wide-eyed, slack-jawed look on his face through the majority of the film that makes me very happy. I love Dan. But he's also invested in the discovery of this truth about death. So it, it's just, I love the the complicated relationship that they have. Um, in this first film, the relationship changes significantly in the second film. It becomes quite toxic. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's not toxic in this film. <laughs> Because it is, but it's it's a different kind of toxicity that I love. So that's Dan and Herbert. That's one of my favorite things about Reanimator. And when I meet someone who hasn't seen Reanimator, I tend to pitch it as like the ultimate romance. Of course, Dan and Herbert are not the only characters in the film. You also have Megan Halsey, who is Dan's girlfriend, and uh, kind of his voice of reason or attempting to be his voice of reason throughout the story, to which he never listens, of course. And she instantly has reservations about Herbert. Her father is the dean of Miskatonic University, Dean Halsey, and he is very good friends with Dr. Carl Hill, who is the villain of our story, which I also really love because Herbert West is kind of a bad guy too. But as soon as we meet Dr. Hill, that shifts completely. Herbert goes from being a little bit of a bad guy to being a character with which you completely sympathize and you're rooting for him. And it's because Hill is so much worse. I'll have you locked up for a madman. Or a murderer. So Dr. Hill is the leading neurosurgeon at Miskatonic University. As I mentioned, a good friend of Dean Halsey's. And uh, he is also a little enamored of the Dean's daughter of Megan um, in a very inappropriate way. And he's used to being like the big shot on campus. And when West arrives and immediately shamelessly accuses him of plagiarizing Dr. Gruber's work and throws so much attitude around, you know, as well as apathy, because he just could not be less impressed with Dr. Hill. That doesn't really sit quite right with him. And on top of that, Dr. Hill already saw Dan as a bit of a threat or a competition because Dan is dating the woman that he's attracted to and interested in. So when Dan and Herbert become friends, Dr. Hill's attitude toward Dan intensifies and becomes much worse. There was an entire Dr. Hill subplot that was removed from the film, where Dr. Hill is not just the leading neurosurgeon uh, at Miskatonic, but he's also just such a master of the human mind that he is also able to control it in an almost supernatural way by way of like the power of suggestive thought and kind of telepathy. And uh, so a lot of the decisions that like Dean Halsey, Megan's dad, makes throughout the film, and some of the things that Megan does and says as well, but predominantly the dean of the school, most of his behavior can actually be accredited to Dr. Hill because because the Dean is being manipulated by him in, in like a psychic way. They cut out all of the scenes where that's actually spelled out, but the Dean still behaves the same way, which I think unfortunately kind of makes the Dean a slightly less sympathetic character. But um, luckily we have Barbara Crampton playing Megan and her sympathy for him kind of works for the audience, I think, in a way. But th that's like our cast of characters. You have Herbert, Dan, Megan... Uh, and then you have Dean Halsey, played by Robert Sampson, and Dr. Hill, played by David Gale. Before I move on from the cast and the characters, I would like to say for the record that Dr. Hill is one of my favorite villains in any movie ever. I love how incredibly arrogant he is. I mean, and he is. He's so pompous. But also, what a spineless jackass he is, too. And you see that. That's established immediately. All four of the of the male main characters, actually, uh, we see them all together in a room for the first time very, very early on in the film when West is being given a tour of Miskatonic by the Dean and he's taken into Dr. Hill's classroom where Dan also is. And so we see all four of these characters interacting for the first time. And just that, that one scene is so very telling. We have Dr. Hill with his nose in the air, kind of scrutinizing, looking very unhappy about West being there. You have the Dean all smiles and just completely oblivious to what's going on. You have Dan eyeing Wes, just staring him up and down in a very curious way of like, who is this guy? Trying to figure him out. He's already super curious about him. And then you have West pacing around the room, assessing the environment, trying to, I would imagine, figure out what in the room would be of use to him. <laughs> because his entire life is about the pursuit of this knowledge, and that's all he fucking cares about. And he's just throwing shade at Dr. Hill the whole time that he's assessing the room. And your support of the 12-minute limit on the life of the brainstem after death? Six to 12 minutes, Mr. Uh, 
West. I just think it's such a telling introductory scene to all four of these characters. We do get a nice introductory scene to Megan as well. We establish right away that she's very sweet, very kind, just an innocent kind of bubbly young co-ed. She's in love with Dan and that's that's pretty much it. I don't mean to say that to like diminish her character because her character is great. And a big part of why these characters work so well and what makes them so charming were the actors that played them and the chemistry they had. There are very few films where the cast has this degree of, of chemistry, in my opinion, particularly uh, the two leads. I think Bruce Abbott and Jeffrey Combs were just spectacular on screen together. I could watch them all day. I was really disappointed, actually, that Bruce Abbott didn't come back for Beyond Reanimator because it's so hard to see Herbert without Dan. As much as I love Herbert, I, I want Dan to be there somewhere, you know? Coming into this film, a lot of these actors were coming from theater, and there was a hunger there for the roles. There was a... Their performances were on fucking point. And... They were very physical as well. And I would imagine that that comes from, you know, having experience on the stage. All of their performances were very physical performances, particularly that of Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West. It's a very physical role and he does it so fucking well. So it's hard for me to like take my eyes off of anybody. Everyone in the film is just so interesting. and funny. Uh, It's a very funny film. That's something else that I love about it. I mean, yes, it's a dark comedy, so the humor isn't going to be as sort of overt or accessible as something like Zombieland or or Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, but it is a horror comedy, and I find it hilarious. It gets funnier to me every time I see it. A big part of that, again, are the performances. I think particularly that of Jeffrey Combs and David Gale. I think that they really bring a lot of dark humor to what was already a a really funny script. Um, Another thing that contributes greatly to the humor of the film, uh, in my opinion, are the special effects. There's a a cluster of films that were made by Stuart Gordon and or Brian Usna that utilized a lot of the same crew members. And this film, I think, just beautifully illustrates why Stuart Gordon cultivated that family. The very first effect in the film that we see, which is Dr. Gruber's death, was done by uh, John Carl Beekler, who I talked about during my Full Moon episode. I personally believe he was one of the greatest special effects and makeup artists of ever. <laughs> and uh, I think Reanimator was so lucky to have him, along with Everett Burrell, who had worked on Aliens, and uh, John Nowlin, who said of this film that it was the bloodiest film he had ever worked on. Apparently, at that time, at least in 1985, I would imagine, unless you're talking about like, you know, like Giallo films or something, it was a little more common for special effects scenes to use maybe like two or three gallons of blood in a given production. But the special effects department on Reanimator went through 24 gallons of fake blood. I have heard people say in the past that they are reluctant to watch Reanimator because they get the impression that it's going to be a gore fest. And it is. But it's a campy, divorced from reality kind of gore fest. The, the, the effects are amazing, but they're not hyper-realistic effects. And I think that that adds to the charm and the humor of the film. It's campy, and it's intentionally campy, and it works really well. It also lent well, I think, to a lot of creativity on set. I mean, because they went hog wild with the violence and the gore. Uh, in a very fun way. And you hear these stories about how, um, like at one point in the film, Dr. Hill, who is murdered by Herbert West, essentially to protect his research, because Dr. Hill threatens to blackmail him when he realizes the reagent works. And Herbert, in a fit of desperation and to protect his work, (laughs) wrenches Dr. Hill's head off with a shovel. After that, of course, Herbert has to has to test the reagent on Carl Hill because he doesn't fucking care that Dr. Hill is a villain who was trying to blackmail him. He only cares about the science. So it doesn't enter Herbert's mind that it might be a bad idea to reanimate his arch nemesis. (laughs) He just doesn't. Of course, Dr. Hill escapes and becomes this monster that then terrorizes Megan. And and, yeah, it's a whole big thing. But the, the point is, that headless effect with, you know, Carl Hill being just a reanimated head and then his body sort of wandering around without him. The rumors are that it was achieved like 10 different ways. Like every scene with the headless Dr. Hill was done differently. It's just fascinating to me how experimental and how fun this film seemed to be for everybody working on it. And that comes that comes through, I think. That comes across in the execution. I think you can tell that they're all having a really good time, which is absolutely up there on my list of favorite aspects of the film. It's just how much fun it is. It's impossible not to have fun watching Reanimator because they are having so much making it. It's like the final girls in that way, you know? I was also really surprised to learn that this film was shot in only 18 days. 
I mean, it was 16 days of principal filming and then uh, two days of pickup shots. But this film was shot in less time than it took to shoot Prom Night. And it is such a solid fucking film. It just boggles my mind that they got it done so quickly. Some of my favorite moments in the film, uh, most of them are actually between Dan and, and Herbert, which I'm sure having talked about it, that it's no surprise. But I really love the moments between Dan and Herbert when they are trying to improvise solutions to the very real problems that arise when reanimating corpses. I love watching them freak out, but also try to figure out how to immediately solve the problem. Now, he interrupted an important experiment in progress. Granted, it was an accident, but this is the freshest body that we could come across save of killing one ourselves. And every moment that we spend talking about it costs us results. Now, will you give me a hand? When Herbert first shows Dan that the reagent works on Dan's cat that was killed, I love everything about the conversation that they have leading up to the demonstration. And then once the cat comes back to life and attacks Herbert, I absolutely adore both of their reactions to that moment. I think Herbert, of course, has the most shining moments in that scene, but I, I fucking love watching them interact and, and try to problem solve under great duress because there's a psychotic cat latched onto Herbert's back and... um <laughs> And now Dan, who has already had to process that his cat died in the first place and that his roommate turned him into a science experiment, but now he has to process that the cat has come back to life with murderous intent. And it's just, it's hilarious and, and wonderful to watch. I also really love the scene uh, after Dean Halsey is killed by one of the corpses that was reanimated by them. And Dan just has like a complete mental breakdown. And Herbert is trying to get him to get his shit together so that they can move Dean Halsey's body onto a slab and experiment on it because it's the freshest body that they're likely to find. And Dan is just, he's hes shutting down because his girlfriend's father was just killed by one of their experiments and he has no fucking clue how to proceed. And he ends up just curling up in a ball on the floor and Herbert covers him up with a blanket. <laughs> I love it so much. And I have to ask, you know, like I have to wonder, did he cover him up with the blanket because he actually worried that he might be cold, you know, that it, he thought it might help him because he's having like a meltdown. Or did he just cover him up with a blanket because he felt like that's what a normal person would have done? Like Herbert's like mimicking behavior that he has seen from other people in times of distress. And that's, uh, that's one of the questions that comes up about Herbert in particular because of his relationship with Dan. And it is a question that is explored in much greater detail in Bride of Reanimator. But in the first film, I find myself asking a lot, like how much of the relationship between Herbert and Dan from Herbert's perspective how much does he actually care about Dan or is it really just that he relies on him? Is it because he needs the assistance and it really could be anybody? I mean, he actually does insist at one point that it kind of has to be Dan, that it should be Dan working with him. But I just find, I find it so fascinating because Herbert can't be, he, he just, he can't be bothered by things like love or vanity or, you know, there are just so many things that are trifles to him compared to the the greater, much more important picture, which is defying death. So the idea of him having a close friend that he cares about so much so that he would cover him up with a blanket when he's in distress, is just, it's, it's highly entertaining and it raises some really fun questions. My favorite line of dialogue in the film, it's really hard to choose, but I think it would have to be this one. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. <laughs> Evidently, Jeffrey Combs was especially proud of the second half of that line, get a job in a sideshow. But the first half of the line is so funny. When they were screening the film, the audience was laughing so hard at the first half of the line, a lot of them didn't even hear the second part. And Jeffrey Combs was a little sad about that. Um, I think that it's just spectacular from start to finish. Two fantastic fucking sentences that pop into my head quite a lot. <laughs> For no reason. I think it's great. And I, and I love the way he delivers the line. Um, I love the way he delivers all of his lines. Even the one when he first presents the roommate flyer to Dan outside of his house and his voice sounds all fucked up because of bad looping. Even that line I love. West. Herbert West. There has been some talk in recent years regarding the potentially problematic nature of some of the scenes with Megan and Dr. Hill toward the end of the film. Uh, Barbara Crampton is nude, on, lying on a slab, and Dr. Hill's severed head uh, being held by his body is essentially attempting to perform oral sex on her, and it is very intense and very disturbing. And there, there's been some talk about that scene in recent years as more people have become aware of the film. Uh, but Barbara Crampton herself has said she doesn't regret doing it. Obviously, David Gale 
probably regretted doing it as his wife apparently walked out on him during the filming of that scene and never came back. So I'm sure David Gale regretted it. And I mean, I know that he had a hard time filming that scene. But Barbara Crampton has said that she doesn't regret, you know, being a part of that. And it's definitely an effective scene. It's a very shocking scene, but that's the point. It's a shocking film. So I I don't know. I I enjoy that scene. And also when you take a step back from the from that scene, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous what's happening. A man has been decapitated. His head has been reanimated. I mean, along with his body, but they're not attached. And he is holding his own severed head in his hands. And he's just like going in for the kill toward Megan's vagina. It's fucking absurd. To me, that's hilarious. It's very darkly funny, but it's it's funny. I just wanted to kind of toss in my opinion about it because I know that there's been some controversy surrounding it lately. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And if Barbara Crampton was comfortable with it, I think, I think it's fine. You steal the secret of life and death, and here you are, trysting with the bubble-headed co-ed. You're not even a second-rate scientist. Is there anything I don't like about Reanimator? Nope. There is nothing that I don't like about this film. I mean, the only thing that I have that's even close to a complaint was what I was saying earlier about how uh, I, I do wish that Dean Halsey had been a slightly more sympathetic character if they were going to remove like the hypnotism subplot. But it doesn't really even matter because he's still a likable character. You still like him. And Barbara Crampton plays Megan so sympathetically that her affection for her father is infectious. So I, that's not even that's not even an issue. And that would be the closest thing that I could possibly ever have to a complaint. I think this movie is fucking flawless. It's everything that I want from a horror film. It has a fun, thought-provoking couple of storylines happening simultaneously. It's visually shocking, disturbing. It's a bloody mess in the best possible sense. Um, Barbara Crampton has said that Stuart Gordon's like entire film philosophy was instead of less is more, more is more. Uh, more is not enough, I think actually is what she said. More blood, more screaming, more, you know, everything. And th this film is, is very much an embodiment of that. It's very funny. I love the relationships between the characters, not just Herbert and Dan. I really like Megan's relationship with her father. I love the rivalry between Dr. Hill and Herbert. Uh, I, I like the relationship between Dan and Megan as well. One of the other things I absolutely adore about Reanimator is its opening theme. The, the entire score I really love, but the opening theme to Reanimator is one of the single most spectacular things I've ever heard with my ears. I have mixed feelings about Richard Band as a composer. Uh, he's written a couple of themes that I have just not, not liked at all. But he also wrote this one, which is just, it's my favorite theme from any movie ever. Also, something else that I just want to add really quickly. Visually, Reanimator is so much fun to look at. I mean, it's not just the day glow liquid that they use for the reagent, which is mesmerizing. But I mean, everything about it. I love that they took the story of Herbert West's Reanimator uh, and made it contemporary because I think I think they initially did that because it would have been too expensive to set it in the time in which it was initially you know set. Um, but I love that they they made it contemporary and where they chose to film um, and the sets that they did build were just they're very um, it's a feast for the eyes in so many ways. I just think all in all, it's 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 just great. If I haven't stressed that enough, guys, I, I kind of just I kind of like Reanimator just, just a little bit. A couple of quick fun facts about the film that I've always appreciated. Um, the gurney that Bruce Abbott is pushing down the hallway in the film toward the morgue was actually taken from the set of Dan O'Bannon's Return of the Living Dead because it already had a hole cut in it. <laughs> the role of Dr. Hill was originally written with Christopher Lee in mind, and I'm so glad, and I love Christopher Lee so much, but I'm, I'm really glad that it went to David Gale. I think that David Gale was absolutely perfect. You could easily see Christopher Lee in that role. I just think it would have been a different movie. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think David Gale was the right choice. Uh, Barbara Crampton does all of her own screaming in the movie. There were no stand-in screamers, which is, is awesome. I think it, it just solidifies, you know, Barbara Crampton's position in the Scream Queen Hall of Fame forever, you know, because there's some pretty great screaming in the movie. And if you look in Dan's apartment toward the beginning of the film, you will see a poster for the Talking Heads, which is especially funny because later in the movie... Um, the main villain is a talking head. So all in all, as I said, Reanimator, it's just the best horror movie I've ever seen. It's my second favorite role from Jeffrey Combs. It's not my top role from him because I personally believe that he was put on this earth 
to play Edgar Allan Poe. And so his roles in Nevermore and The Black Cat are, are my favorite thing he's ever done. But this is very much a close second. Everybody else in the film as well. It's my favorite film that any of them have ever been in. And uh, definitely my favorite Stuart Gordon film. Although I am a fan of pretty much all of the others that I've seen. There's a lot more that I would love to go into regarding like the behind the scenes and like the fun facts and stuff about the film. But because I want to also touch down on the sequels, I could just sit here and talk about the movie for like another six hours. But I want this to be listenable. So we're going to move on. You made her? Yes. Dead pieces of this. My hands. I created what no man's mind or woman's womb could ever hope to achieve. Moving into Bride of Reanimator, uh, which, I mean, full disclosure, I love all three of the Reanimator films. All of them. Including Beyond Reanimator. I know not everybody shares my enthusiasm for it. I don't like either of the sequels as much as I like the first one, but... I love them all. And Bride of Reanimator, I love mostly because so uh, you see the return of of several original cast members and characters. So you have Herbert West being played by Jeffrey Combs. Again, Bruce Abbott playing Dan Kane. David Gale returns as Dr. Hill. And we introduce some new elements. We have a, a, a new setting. But the tone of the story is a bit darker. And I appreciate that about it. Bride of Reanimator was directed not by Stuart Gordon, but by Brian Usna, who produced and helped write the first film. It was also, again, produced by Brian Usna and written by Wood. Keith and Rick Fry. It originally premiered at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival in 1990. It definitely goes a little bit deeper into the exploration of the toxicity of the friendship between Herbert and Dan. A lot of that moral dilemma that we saw Dan experiencing in the first film has really just, it's taken him to a very bad place in this film. Rather than being afraid of Herbert though, like like the narrator in the short story, it feels more like at this point Dan feels exhausted with Herbert and just kind of done. Somehow Dan and Herbert have become medics uh, in the Peruvian Civil War, and they're using that position to also continue to conduct their experiments. And we establish almost immediately that Dan is pretty much done. Dan does not have the same level of interest or enthusiasm for the experiments as he did in the first film. And Herbert is not oblivious to this. And that's kind of the biggest theme of Bride of Reanimator for me, coming at this as someone who really loves the 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 Dan Herbert dynamic for me that's the best way I know how to describe Bride of Reanimator is the honeymoon is over Dan has fallen out of love with Herbert and Herbert is aware of this and in an effort to revive Dan's enthusiasm for their pursuits as well as make him feel better because this is Herbert's way of trying to make Dan feel better he assembles what to Herbert's definition, what he thinks Dan will regard as the perfect woman. That woman is played by the incredible Kathleen Kinmont. The design of the woman that Herbert creates is just fan-fucking-tastic. Definitely one of the more memorable movie monsters to me. It kind of puts me in mind of like, think the Bride of Frankenstein, if she had been tossed into the world of Mad Max, circa beyond Thunderdome. It's a bizarre, beautiful visual. I love the costume. I love the makeup. I love just the overall concept of her character because she is pieced together from a multitude of women. And they really, they executed that quite well. And of course, Kathleen um, Kinmont's performance, once she wakes up, uh, is it just adds to that because she does have a little bit of that Bride of Frankenstein thing going on. Obviously, she is awake. She is aware of herself a little, but she's not quite herself. She's very scared. She immediately pair bonds with Dan and Dan becomes, you know, kind of her protector. And then, of course, the actual love interest that we have for Dan in this film, which is not Barbara Crampton. Um, it's uh, Fabiana Udenio, I think is how you pronounce her name, but she plays Francesca. Um, someone that Dan knew from the war. She is his love interest in Bride of Reanimator. But of course, when the the actual living love interest encounters the woman that Herbert created for Dan, chaos ensues. And the ending of Bride of Reanimator, in my opinion, feels a lot more like the ending of the short story. All hell breaks breaks loose and all of these reanimated corpses come for Herbert, uh, which is exactly how the short story ends. So it's a little bit darker. It's a little bit more exciting. There's a little bit more action. I, again, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying that the first reanimated doesn't have all of those things, but the tone is a little bit different. They got uh, 
even more creative with the special effects in Bride of Reanimator. So if you're a fan of the SFX in the first one, you will be a fan of the second. But the the main takeaway that I have from Bride of Reanimator is that it's mostly Herbert just trying to get his his friend back. He just wants Dan to invest in the experiments again, to be his assistant, to be his friend, and he will do anything he can. And it's it's Herbert's warped way of trying to seduce Dan back to science. Um, and obviously it doesn't work out in, in an ideal way for for anyone. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Bride of Reanimator. Uh, I thought Brian Houston did a really good job. Um, I thought the writers did a great job. Herbert has some some really great classic lines in this one as well, particularly in his interactions with a police officer that is investigating them. But but Herbert definitely comes across as a bit more of a villain in this film. And Dan is most certainly the character uh, with which we should sympathize. But of course, much like the first film, that shifts, that changes. In- initially, we're sympathizing with Dan, but by the end, we're sympathizing with Gloria, with the woman, and with Francesca. Much more so Gloria, though, I think. Francesca's not really the most likable character. I definitely preferred Megan Halsey in terms of a leading woman. This film also has a uh, really ridiculous special effect with a dog who has had a human hand sewn to his body, and I fucking adore it. It's one of the most absurd things I've ever seen. I would recommend watching it just for the dog. And because there were a lot of like the same crew members working on this one, we had a lot, you know, a handful of the original cast members. It definitely feels like a direct sequel to Reanimator. It has it has quite a bit of the same feel. Um, the co- same costume designer, uh, Robin Lewis West, who I absolutely loved. She was part of the costume department for both of these these first two films, and that shows. I'm especially fond of the set design. I really love the house in which Bride of Reanimator takes place. I think it's just fantastic. It's creepy as fuck, and and just very befitting these two characters. And it also has a little bit of like a Victorian feel to it, which is a nice homage to the original Lovecraft story. I thought that was a cool idea. If you can't afford to set the film in an an older time period, just shoot it in an older house in a contemporary setting and it's still going to, it makes for a nice homage. John Carl Beekler was also brought back for special effects makeup. Uh, along with Howard Berger and Anthony Dublin. So there, there are just a lot of really great people working on this as well, which is why I think the SFX are just as good. They're just as good, just as much fun um, as the first film. Bride of Reanimator was also recently showcased on The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And as a result, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about it lately, which has just made me so happy. Like, I love that it's it's kind of, you know, seeing a resurgence in popularity. And I love that, like, everywhere I turn on social media, I'm seeing something or other about Bride of Reanimator. I was trying to think of things I don't like about this one, and I really can't think of much either. I mean, it, it's, it's another one of those just really solid films throughout, and I have very few complaints, if any. Of course, this brings me to Beyond Reanimator. <laughs> Before I leave, I want to conduct one last experiment, and you were the perfect subject. Oh, Beyond Reanimator. I love it so much, you guys. It's really bad, though. Like, the, unlike the first two films, where I have just virtually no complaints, Beyond Reanimator has a lot of fucking problems. It's, it's, it's kind of a mess, but I love it. I love it so much. The number one reason being that although none of the other original cast members or characters feature at all in this film, Herbert is still here. Jeffrey Combs came back in 2003 to play Herbert West again, and he did it beautifully. He grew into the character so well. And we saw quite a bit of that development in Bride of Reanimator as he was kind of becoming a little more desperate, you know, to get his friend back. But he was perfecting the reagent. He was perfecting his art. He was refining his techniques. And he was expressing himself a little more passionately, a little bit more creatively. We saw quite a bit of Jeffrey Combs really figuring out who Herbert West was becoming in the sequel. And and I mean, the whole thing with Herbert West is that Jeffrey Combs, I think, settled into that character so quickly and made it his own right from the go. So, I mean, he he always felt comfortable in the role to me, but I felt like he was just slightly more comfortable in Bride of Reanimator. And by Beyond Reanimator, he is Herbert West. I really feel like he just nestled right into the character. And given the length of time that had passed, you know, between Bride of Reanimator in 90 and this film in 2003, the fact that Jeffrey Combs was able to show up and just just go right back into it and just, he, he's Herbert. He's Herbert all grown up. He's Herbert having been in prison for 13 years. He's a little jaded and has lost all patience, which he really didn't have that much to begin with. But this is actually... <sighs> 
This is actually like my favorite version of Herbert West, actually, is the is the aged, absolutely done taking shit. I will spend the rest of my life pursuing my scientific goal, even in prison, no matter what I have to do. The prison hardened version of Herbert West is is kind of my favorite. Don't get me wrong, I love I love OG Herbert. I cosplay OG Herbert, man. I love him so much. I really like the Herbert West of Beyond Reanimator. So Beyond Reanimator um, is a Spanish-American film. It was also directed and co-written by Brian Usna, released in 2003. It's definitely not as fun or as charming or as clever as the films that came before. It is none of those things. But I do really enjoy the setting. And, and as I said, I love Herbert West in this version. I enjoy the story. I think it's a neat concept. I like seeing Herbert West in prison and seeing how he navigates the obstacles that come along with being in prison and still trying to figure out, you know, how to defeat death. The biggest problem the film has, of course, I think, is just that nobody else came back. That it was, it's just Herbert alone. Um, instead of Dan, he now has, uh, um, Howie, Howard Phillips, which I thought was a cute homage, uh, played by Tommy Dean Musset. Uh, he's kind of the new Dan, and I do really enjoy watching Herbert react to Howard's presence in his life when he arrives. Howard is a doctor who is brought in to kind of be on hand for the for the prison, and he is aware of Herbert West. Herbert's reaction to Howie and, and how their working relationship develops is so weighted, because Jeffrey Combs is so talented. He brought all of the weight of the previous two films into that new relationship with with Howie Phillips. And I love that. I don't think any other actor could have pulled off this film. I just don't. I think only Jeffrey Combs could have done it. He makes the movie for me. Uh, so the story of Beyond Reanimator, it takes place 13 years plus after the events of Bride of Reanimator. And young Howie Phillips, who has a very strange or slightly problematic close relationship with his sister, uh, sees his sister murdered by a reanimated corpse. Herbert West is close to the scene and is being arrested outside of Howie's house. As he is arrested, he drops a vial of reagent on the ground, which Howie then picks up and spends the rest of his life uh, trying to figure out how to use it and hunt down Herbert. And he ends up coming to work at the prison where Herbert West is. Obviously, he takes a particular interest in Herbert's work and he treats him like a doctor, which is one of the other things. That, that's one of the things that I really love too. Again, it all comes back to Herbert. Like there's a, a moment after uh, Howie comes to the to the prison and we see that Herbert is being not necessarily mistreated, but he's being treated as though he were a criminal and as though he were a nobody by the prison staff. And when Howie comes to the hospital, he knows that Herbert is a big deal. And he, there's a moment where a prisoner is in distress and how he calls out to him for help, to Herbert for help, but he calls him doctor. And the look on Herbert's face hearing someone call him doctor again for the first time in like 13 years, that alone is worth watching the fucking movie. He also angrily takes off his gloves at one point in a way that just really does it for me. I'm sorry. So maybe my love of Beyond Reanimator is just extremely shallow. You have Herbert West behind bars still conducting his experiments on a very small scale, like on rats and things. Then Howie comes to the prison and assigns Herbert West as his assistant, um, which, we get, which gets Herbert out of his cell a lot more often and puts him back around uh, medical and lab equipment. And then the two begin experimenting to refine the NPE. And of course, it results in gruesome consequences. Um, a lot of people die, a lot of people are reanimated, and the whole thing ends with a prison riot, which is kind of fun. Um, I do love that West escapes in the end. I am a fan of that. I was a little worried the first time I saw Beyond Reanimator that they were finally going to kill him because Herbert West dies in the, the Lovecraftian story. Like Herbert dies in that version of the story. So I was always expecting Herbert to die in, in every film. I was just waiting for it. And I really like that Beyond Reanimator didn't kill him off. I'm hoping against hope that someday Jeffrey will play Herbert one last time. I, I would be so happy to see him play this role again. I'm not banking on it, but it would make me the happiest woman alive. So I know I didn't talk much about Beyond Reanimator, and I also kind of skirted through Bride, but I've been talking for so long. I just wanted to kind of share a few of my thoughts on these films with you guys. And if you still want to hang out with me knowing that my favorite incarnation of Herbert West is the one from the third film... <laughs> then um, we'll probably be friends for life. So it's Jeffrey Combs story time. I've met Jeffrey Combs twice, uh, technically twice, only in person once. But the first time that I met him, he called me on the telephone 
while I was in the bathtub, <laughs> which was really bizarre. I had been living in Ohio for a long time. Uh, as some of you may remember, I am agoraphobic. And, and although I am relatively high functioning now, I was not so much at this particular time. I was still housebound. And uh, a very good friend of mine, Anthony, I want to say that it was the Horror Hound convention. It was either Horror Hound or Days of the Dead. Anthony, if you're listening to this, could you let me know which convention it was? Because I kind of forget. But it was a convention uh, in Sharonville, Ohio, not terribly far from where we live. But my agoraphobia was in full swing at that time. And I just, I could never, I could never have traveled to the con. So the plan was that Anthony was going to take something of mine to get signed by Jeffrey and have me on the phone with him. Like he was going to call me and have me sit on the phone with him while he got it signed so that I could hear it and kind of feel like I was there. So the night of the con, I just kind of kept the phone close to me at all times. It was getting kind of late and I, I'm a bath person. I like to take baths. I feel like that's an unpopular opinion in life these days. A lot of people are, a lot of people have uh, funny feelings about baths. Not fans, but I, I really like taking baths. So it was bath time for me. I'm sitting there in the tub and I have the phone in the bathroom with me, like on the floor, just in case Anthony called. I didn't want to miss it. And the phone rings, sure enough. And I see that it's Anthony. His number's coming up on the caller ID. So I pick up and it was not Anthony's voice on the other line. <laughs> I hear, yeah, hello, is this Molly? And I froze and did not speak for several long seconds that felt like several long minutes. I have no idea why he didn't just hang up on me. When I finally was able to speak, all I could say was, is this Jeffrey Combs? And he said, it is. I'm here with your friend Anthony at convention, and I'm wondering why you're not here. And I panicked, man. I fucking panicked. I knew that he was at the con, calling me at the con for whatever miraculous reason he was calling me on the phone. But I knew that he was at a con. He probably had a long line. He was really busy. So I didn't want to hold Jeffrey Combs up by explaining in detail that I was agoraphobic and housebound. So I lied to him. I just straight up panicked and lied to the love of my life. I said, I'm so sorry, Jeffrey Combs. That's the other thing. I, I just, I only called him by his full name through the entirety of the conversation. I said, I'm so sorry, Jeffrey Combs, because I wanted to be there. I wanted to go to the con just to see you, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> I lied to him, but I'm so glad I did because his response was, Molly, I would have operated on you for free. <laughs> and I died. I stopped living I ceased breathing and I ju I fucking died. The only thing I could muster was, thank you, Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> and uh, and then he quoted Reanimator a couple of times in a kind of personalized way, which was very sweet. And then he gave the phone back to Anthony. But I was, again, still panicking at this point, And I just hung up the phone, like like in the middle of Anthony's sentence. I just, I just hung up on him. I didn't know I was doing it. And so he called me back a couple minutes later. And he's like, how badly are you freaking out right now? I was like, there is water all over my bathroom. I completely, I just was thrashing around. <sighs> anyway, that was my first encounter with uh, Mr. Jeffrey Combs. And then the second time, years later, I had I had gotten well enough that I was able to travel from where I had been living in Ohio here to Omaha, Nebraska. This is my home. And I, I knew I always wanted to come back here. So that was kind of the goal in recovering from um, sort of the worst of my agoraphobia was to be able to get back to Nebraska. So I did. I made it back here. And this would have been, I think... What year is it? 2021? I think this was 2017. Might have been 2018. It was one of those two years, pretty sure. But he came to Okamacon in Council Bluffs, Iowa, across the river. Thankfully, I was well enough that I could go. I wouldn't have wanted to miss it for the world. It was a bittersweet situation because um, the turnout was, it was sad. And that sucked because I took one look around, especially during his Q&A, and I was like, I, there's no way he's ever going to come back here. There were like 25 people at his Q&A. However, because the turnout for Okamacon was not the best, I got to talk to Jeffrey Combs for a long time. Like, we, we got there was nobody behind me. There was nobody in line. He didn't have anything else going on really at that time. So I got to talk to him for a while, which was awesome. Again, I froze. Like meeting him in person was very similar to meeting him on the phone. It was like I was, you know, I was meeting him for the first time. So my legs locked up. I couldn't move. I'm not someone who gets starstruck very often. Obviously, Jeffrey Combs is a big exception. And I and I was very starstruck. And thankfully, my um 
my, well, now my ex-husband was there with me and he pushed me like a little kid on the playground, you know, whose friends like really want to hook her up with like her crush. It was what it was like. He was pushing me toward Jeffrey Combs. He's like, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life if you don't go talk to him. And uh, I'm really glad that he did that. It was so sweet because I, I did. I talked to him and I told him the story of the phone call uh, in the bathtub and he claimed to remember me, which was very kind. I don't know if it was true or not, but I appreciated him saying it either way. And I, I confessed to him that I lied. I said, I'm so sorry. I fucking lied to you about why I wasn't at that con. I, I'm sure that it was the farthest thing from your mind and that you don't care. But like, I have to get this off my conscience. And the reason that I didn't come to the con was because I was housebound with severe agoraphobia. And he goes, <laughs> he was sitting behind the table at the time and he throws his arms up in the air and he goes, well, now look at you. You're here. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm really excited. I'm so, and he stood up and walked around the table and opened his arms. And he's like, can I hug you? I think he said, may I hug you? Because nobody speaks English like Jeffrey Combs. And I was like, yeah. So we hugged. Uh, also what felt like forever, but I'm sure it was only like three seconds. And um, it was wonderful. And then we just stood around and talked. You know, my my husband, uh, my ex-husband uh, got something signed from him. I bought a poster, I think, but I didn't have anything signed um, because I got a hug. I didn't need anything signed. I got I got the best gift ever. Uh, and then we went to the Q&A later that day and I got to ask him a question about Nevermore, which was which was great. And we we took pictures. So those are my meeting Jeffrey Combs stories. What about you guys? Have any of you met Jeffrey Combs? I would love to hear your stories because I have yet to hear a bad one. All right. So speaking of stories, before we wrap up, um, I do just want to read a couple of the answers I got to the horror origins question I posed a few weeks ago. It didn't turn out quite like I had intended it to um, because I didn't get the same volume of answers that I normally do for the worst case scenarios, for one thing. And then when I posed the question on TikTok, I got like, it was like 600 answers. <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. And because I didn't realize I was going to get so many answers and I was still kind of new to the platform when I posed the question, I didn't specify that I wanted to use the answers for, you know, like my podcast. So what I really want to do is kind of retool the whole horror origins discussion concept and devote more time to it in a future episode rather than just sticking it, you know, on the tail end of an existing episode, uh, just using it as a wrap up. I want to actually devote an entire episode to the horror origin question. And I have some ideas for how to do that. And I don't know when it'll happen. It will happen in the future. So if you did answer the question, and I don't read your answer in full here today, please know that that's why. I did notice a couple of things that I just wanted to comment on. Across all platforms, the most common answer to the question uh, was one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, or all of them. For the Bonebreaker on Slasher, it was the first Nightmare on Elm Street. For Bruce over on Instagram, it was the second. There were people on TikTok who answered New Nightmare and Dream Warriors. I just fucking love that, man. I love how big a hand Wes Craven had in ushering so many of us into the horror family. And I also remember when I was a kid, um, because the Nightmare on Elm Street series was not my gateway series. I did really enjoy it, but I didn't see it until a little bit later. I was like 10 or 11 when I first saw the first film. Um, I know I had seen Dream Warriors just shortly before that, but I was there when my, my little stepsister, who was a couple of years younger than I, I watched her see the first Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time and become completely obsessed. She was a done deal, you know. From then on, it was all Wes Craven all the time. I think she was eight. Um, and I just I just love it. I love the sheer volume of people who fell in love with horror through Nightmare. The one answer that I am going to read in full today, because I, I, I just, I couldn't not read it in full, <laughs> came from a man named Aaron Gum, who I haven't really talked about much on the podcast. Um, he's my former bandmate, exceptionally talented musician, also a podcaster. His answer was also reanimator. He says, reanimator is at the very core of my being and horror origins. Somehow I got the unrated VHS in junior high school, and it was by far the most extreme thing I had ever seen. Reanimated bodies smashing through morgue doors, exploding intestines. In ninth grade, I would edit crude music videos by recording my band rehearsing and using the camcorder's AV dub feature to splice in footage from movies like reanimator and ET. I love this answer for so many reasons, but perhaps the most personal of those is that, uh, I think it's great that Aaron discovered Reanimator when he was a kid, fell completely in love with it, uh, and would grow up to be one of the two hosts of Splatterhouse in Omaha, where they showed Reanimator 
and I saw it and fell in love with it for the first time. So indirectly, if it weren't for Aaron falling in love with Reanimator in the seventh grade, I probably wouldn't be here talking about it today. <laughs> if you have a horror origin story you'd like to share, please do. Like I said, I would like to devote an entire episode to this question at some point in the future, so there's still plenty of time to answer. Uh, there are a number of ways you can get a hold of me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday. Um, same as TikTok, actually, now, now that I have one of those. Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you would like to contribute financially to Final Girl Friday's growth, you can always head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Final Girl Friday and, and kick in a couple of bucks, uh, but no pressure. As ever, I'm just really happy you guys are here and listening. Conversely, if you are somebody who answered the question on TikTok, please let me know if it's cool for me to use your answer in a future episode, because I would like to. I should have specified that when I asked the question in the first place, <laughs> but I didn't because I'm a fool. But I would really, I would love to hear everybody's stories, man. They're my favorite stories, those first time horror stories. And I, I would love to hear as many as I can get um, and just compile them all into one whole big long thing. I hope you guys will forgive me, but uh, I am feeling pretty sentimental this week. It is my two year anniversary. When I look back, um, especially at that very first episode, uh, I have no idea why anyone ever started listening to my podcast. <laughs> I was so nervous at the mic and I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I still, I still barely do, but I really, that was very, it was so much more true two years ago. And I wanted to talk about it, but I just, I didn't really have very good equipment. I was incredibly anxious on the mic and, and it's just, um, it was a hot mess of an episode, but I had such a great time that day, and I can't believe that I've been doing it for two years. And it's only growing, which is really exciting, you know. More than anything, like much more so than the content that I've created in the last two years, the thing that has been the most special to me about my life since creating Final Girl Friday has been the people that I've met. I, I mean, it's just, just a staggering number of incredible horror fans and decent human beings. I really don't know how I might have handled everything that has happened in the last two years in the world if it hadn't been for all of you. So just thank you for existing. I hope you all have a bloody good weekend. I'll be back in a week or two talking about something. I don't know what. Stay safe, stay sane, don't expect it to tango, and until next time, creep it real. <laughs> <laughs>